good morning, First of Ann. How are we? It's good to be with you. Church planters, probably too much credit, but thank you, Taylor. Uh, maybe my wife sent that to you to squeeze it in. Uh, hey, it's a joy to be here. This church is really special to me. It's special to my family. Uh, my wife and I got married here. Uh, Cole and Lynn are really dear friends of ours. In fact, Cole and I were texting this morning, and so I know y'all are on his heart and mind uh, all the way from Jerusalem as he's praying for our time together. I really appreciated Taylor's prayer earlier, uh, illuminating both the uh, joy and difficulty that is Mother's Day uh, for many of us. In fact, my, my dad spent uh, last night in the hospital with my grandmother uh, overnight. She was undergoing some medical complications. And so uh, today is a day of joy and a day of grief for so many people. And I thought Taylor's uh, prayer was very meaningful and very appropriate. Today we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes in and of itself is a peculiar book. Uh, on top of that, the passage we're going to be in today is a uh, quite peculiar passage uh, from, from at times what is a difficult book. Now before we get there, I, I do want to lay a little bit of groundwork. Some of you will be, f- be familiar with Ecclesiastes, uh, some of you won't. Uh, in its, in its most simplistic form, probably the best way to describe it is, it is the Bible's book of philosophy. Now, the, the unique thing about the book of Ecclesiastes is it offers us a perspective from God about life without God. Now, don't miss that. So God himself in his uh, infinite and divine wisdom actually included in our scriptures inspired words that tell us what it is to not have him. And so oftentimes as you're reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll go, well, wait a second, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. And you have to remember, well, then you know, that's what it is to live and do life without God in existence or without God in the picture. Now, here's the beautiful thing in God's kindness in giving such a book to us. Uh, uh, I know some of you, uh, uh, some of you are dear friends uh, and, and have been uh, all but spiritual parents to me and my wife. I don't know most of you. That being the case... The spiritual landscape of this room is vast and wide. On top of that, being Mother's Day Sunday, truth be told, some of you were either drugged to church by mom or you just felt like it was the right thing to do because your mom likes church and you wanted to go with her because it's Mother's Day, which puts us in a unique position that the landscape this morning is probably somewhere from uh, 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 some of you are a committed atheist. Some of you may be a bit agnostic, saying, I don't really know what's out there. Some of you may be spiritually interested in seeking to see uh, what is God in church about. And some of you are committed followers of the Lord Jesus. Uh, I would bet all of that is here this morning in some way, shape, or form. Now, in response to that, I'd say, one, welcome. So thankful that all of you are here. Uh, but secondly, and I don't, th- this isn't condescending, and I don't mean this to be trite, but even if you're a committed atheist, here's my word of encouragement. Even the God that you say does not exist, he had you in mind when writing this book. Because Ecclesiastes gives us the firsthand logical conclusions of the despair and vanity and ultimate meaninglessness of life without God. Now today, as we look into chapter 7... Uh, verses 15 through 18 will be our main focus. Uh, we may look at a couple others as it relates to 7, 15 through 18. I'm going to tell you on the front end that as we read it, it's going to sound weird. Uh, furthermore, uh, what gives us great freedom to not have a clue what we're talking about this morning is one commentator says, actually all of 15 
through 29, he says, are the most misinterpreted words of the Bible. So we can really conclude anything this morning and join great company of getting it wrong. Oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Obviously, we want to do justice to God's Word. And I think as we look into it, we'll see that it may not be as daunting as it first presents. But let me read Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 through 18. These are the very words of God. In my vain life, now presumably Solomon the author, and when he says vain life here, some of your interpretations may say brief life or meaningless life. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. I'm in the English Standard Version. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. That's Ecclesiastes seven fifteen through 18. Those are the very words of God. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we are thankful for your word. Now we do proclaim uh, before you this morning that it is your word that sits in authority over us, uh, regardless of how it makes us feel, or regardless of what our own perspective may be, to disagree with you is to necessarily make ourselves wrong. And so we come to the Bible asking and expecting you to speak. Uh, We expect in the power of your Spirit uh, that if our hearts are soft and and we're willing that you would change us this morning more into the likeness and image of our Lord Jesus. And God, we do praise you this morning in, in accord with what Taylor prayed earlier just for uh, uh, the impact and meaningful reality uh, that motherhood is to the brilliant and beautiful position that Scripture elevates a role that uh, our culture can depreciate. Uh, God, I praise you publicly before this church uh, for my wife and for the way that you've knit her into a beautiful, intentional mom. God, I praise you uh, this morning for the sustaining grace you've given many of us to navigate what are difficult relationships as it relates to mothers, but it is to not be able to bear children beyond ourselves, though our deepest desire is to. And so you, God, are big enough to handle all of that at the same time, in the same moment, uh, and we praise you. In Christ's wonderful name I pray, amen. Okay, in my, verse 15, vain life, I've seen everything. There's a little bit of a clue here at the beginning of the passage that this author, again, I'm going to presume Solomon, he's making observations from what he has seen. Now, if you go all the way through verse 29, which really is kind of this section, we won't get to all of it this morning. As you get to the end of it, you're going to understand that both his experience and I really think by verse 29, his reflection on Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are forming what he gives to us. Uh, in this section of scripture. And so he says, in my observation. Now remember, uh, oftentimes remove God from the picture. So humanly speaking, the author saying, from my observing life, this is what I've seen. It says, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. That is the author's way of saying, I've observed life. And at the end of the day, uh, some things just don't make sense. 
right? That, that I've watched people seemingly do all of the right things and yet tragedy befall them. I've seen people uh, live in utter desperate wickedness and yet seemingly they enjoy the pleasure of life and live to an old age. He says, uh, uh, to be cliche, uh, he says, I've seen the good die young, and I've seen the evil live long and prosper. Now, he uses that kind of extreme example to bring into view this morning that life is completely out of our control in this sense. There is no possible way for any of us to maneuver every chess piece on the board of our life and guarantee an outcome. And that's what he's squaring with this morning. Right, and we can bring it even uh, uh, into intimate view this morning in light of uh, the national calendar of Mother's Day. Uh, and let's put all parenting into it. Uh, we could follow, hypothetically, and do every possible right thing as the Bible informs us towards parenting. And we have no ultimate control as to what that child will do, be, or become. That's a hard truth, isn't it? In fact, we, we can do nothing ultimately uh, to control the outcome of preventing tragedy from coming into life. There's no perfect formula for us to follow as we go to lunch this afternoon or have dinner tonight or regulate our diets and say, as long as I live and eat this way for the rest of my life, it is guaranteed cancer prevention. He says, what I've done is I've stepped back, I've observed life, and at the end of the day, in really ultimate senses, it is out of my control. And at the end of the day, the control that I wish I had is an illusion because in my own power, it's impossible to prevent tragedy. Okay, now when he makes that observation, he's then going to walk us to, uh, through two ways of responding to that. Okay, so take God out of the picture and take, take us just looking at life and going, all right, Lord, uh, This doesn't make sense. I know this family. I know their heart. I know they love you. And yet tragedy has befallen them in unspeakable ways. God, I know this family. I know this person. And I know in all the ways that they either explicitly or implicitly uh, rebel against you and curse your name. And yet they seem to be flourishing. He says, as we make these observations of the things that just don't make sense to us. He says at times there are two ways that many of us will respond. And here's the first one. Look at it with me. Verse 16. It says, Be not overly righteous. So in view of the unpredictable and tragic nature of life, he says, Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now, that's a weird verse to find in the Bible, isn't it? That it would seem like the Bible would push us towards righteousness. Uh, and so just to, to uh, kind of step out of the verses, a little practical tip. Anytime we're reading the Bible 
and we find what is an unclear passage. One, one general rule that will help us navigate less clear passages is by finding clearer passages that help us know what this verse can't mean. Okay, so there's way too much of Scripture that lets us know, no, pursuing righteousness and holiness, that being conformed to the image of Christ is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Okay, so this verse is not telling us to sin a little bit. It's not saying, yes, be righteous, but not really righteous. Sprinkle some sin in so you can kind of keep it right down the middle road. We know from other passages that can't be what this is saying. So what does he mean? Well, let's look at it in two ways. Let's look at it uh, in, in sort of a worldly wisdom approach, and let's look at it inside of the church. So let's take just a worldly cultural approach. Here's all he would be saying there. Uh, 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 being overly righteous is the type of person that tries to jump on every new fad, every new diet, that tries to insulate themselves from tragedy. They want to live in the safest place, in the safest part of town. They want to uh, make sure that they have cameras everywhere. They want to make sure their kids are home when they're on their helicopter. Parent. They're like, everything you could do to try to do all the right things to control the outcome. He's saying in the worldly cultural sense, it's becoming overly righteous. Now, why does he say not to do that? If you really live trapped, believing that if you just do all of these things, then you can guarantee and control an outcome, then you're going to turn inwards on yourself and become neurotic and paranoid and joyless. Because instead of enjoying the present, you are consumed believing you can control the future. So it'll destroy you personally. It'll destroy you relationally. And just to take a silly example, how many of us have been to family holiday gatherings and there's such an expectation performance of how everything's supposed to go that if one thing gets off, it's like everything's ruined. Why? There's some belief there that if everyone behaves and accords a certain way, if all the food's prepared at the right perfect time, if it all tastes exactly how it's supposed to taste, then there's a controllable outcome that everyone's joyful. The irony in there is there's a loss of enjoying the messiness of the present. Okay, so he says this. He says, you can track that path if you want to, and you will find the unpredictable nature of life is going to be fighting your illusion of control from the, till the day that you die. And you will live in a paranoid, fearful, controlling, joyless existence. He's saying that's what being overly wise in that manner, that's how it will destroy you. Okay, but let's step inside the church. Uh, he says... Don't be overly righteous. Well, uh, I think that's a warning towards self-righteousness. So when he says overly righteous, it's almost uh, uh, tongue-in-cheek. It's almost a sense of sarcasm in there. It's the very group of people that Jesus rails against uh, in the four Gospels. It's the Pharisees. It's those that have presented themselves as being the best of the best. And everything's external. Everything is, look at what I'm doing, and because of what I'm doing, I'm elevated above you, and I find special favor with God. He's saying, if you pursue a course of self-righteousness, where you really believe 
that because of what's who you are and what you do, it makes you superior to others. And you are the reason why God would invite you into his presence. He says that too will destroy you. He says, just look at the Pharisees in the New Testament. Jesus' words for them are your whitewashed tombs. You look really good externally and you are dead inside. And the very God you proclaim to serve, your heart knows nothing of him. Because if we really get to the place where we are completely given over to self-righteousness, here's what happens. We actually begin to hate grace. Okay, so if we're given over to self-righteousness, we can't stand the fact that someone who would sin in a way that is so horrific or irritating to us, to watch that same person walk in the forgiveness and joy of the Lord instead of just just moaning and wallowing in shame. Like We want to see that person feel shame and guilt and we want them to know how horrific they are. And we are irritated beyond belief to see them experience the joy of the Lord. That's self-righteousness given over to hating grace. Now there's a warning for us in there. I have actually, and this is shameful to admit, found myself wanting God to deliver uh, punishment and consequence on someone because they've offended me, and I would rather be self-satisfied and them feeling pain than I would be honoring to the Lord And seeing them taste the forgiveness and joy of Christ. That's sin in me. There's nothing noble about that. That's me presenting myself as overly righteous. And again, spiritually considered, destroys me from the inside out. Because it drives a wedge of intimacy between me and the God of grace I proclaim to serve. And she says, what's one way to respond to the unpredictable and tragic nature of life? It's try to control everything. And inside the church, it's try to present yourself, even when everything is spiraling out of control, present yourself as superior and greater and better than others. That's one way to do it. Now, here's the other way, he says, that we can be led to respond. Look at it with me, verse 17. Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, uh, hear me on this. Dying before your time, it's, it's not a theological statement in this passage. Okay, so it's not calling into question God's sovereignty or God's providence or God marking out days before us. It, it, it's, it's an idiom. It, it's simply saying, why should you die young, uh, uh, not in accordance with what would be a normal life expectancy? That's all he's saying. Uh, he's saying there's a general sense that we all get that's a normal uh, uh, time of years on earth and he's saying hey why cheat yourself of experiencing life by living in total wickedness and the pleasure of your flesh oftentimes in a lifestyle that's going to lead to an untimely death now what brings someone here well despair 
Apathy. I mean, think about it. Take God out of the picture. Observe the brokenness of the world that surrounds us. Look at evil and suffering and how it, it seemingly comes upon all people without, uh, without uh, uh, you know, discrimination or explanation. Yeah. Uh, uh, refuse to believe in God's existence and just walk through the halls of St. Jude and you start to go, well, what's the point of this deal? Why should I, in any of my time on earth, if there is no God, why should I do anything other than satisfy my own desire? And here he says, well, I'm going to warn you, even if you don't uh, believe in God, he said, if you just want to like live and enjoy some things on earth, saying, you know, you can do a little wickedness, but don't go all the way there. Your lifestyle will lead to your untimely death. And this is the biblical insight into what it is to try to navigate the unpredictable, tragic nature of this broken world without God in the picture. It's really fascinating. Obviously, just chronologically, the author can't have had this story in mind, but I do think in God's divine wisdom and sovereignty and the construction of his word, there's, there's great completeness there. You know a great picture of this in the New Testament is Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, really a story of two sons and his father, if you're not familiar with it. The older son in that story is overly righteous. And at the end of the story, we learn he has no relationship with the father who's the figure of God in the story. Now, what is characteristic of that older son? Father, I've done everything you've told me to do. I've done all the right things. I've performed how I was supposed to perform. And yet it says in that story that him and the father had no relationship. Well, the younger uh, son in that story is the one who's overly wicked. He's the one who uh, turns his back to his father uh, and says, goes to a foreign country to engage in life, uh, a wild living. Okay, so anything he desired, he did. He had an enormous sum of money. He lived it up, whatever he wanted, you know, uh, pleasure, women, food, drink, gambling. He just like lived it to the fullest extent. Now, the next step for him, so we don't get in the story, the next step for that younger son, when you get to the end of, of that parable in Luke 15, is actually death. The next step is dying, in a sense, before his time. He is starving. He is in a pig pen, longing, doesn't even say he gets to be fed with, he's longing to eat the slop of the pigs. He's emaciated. And he's dying of starvation. Now there is one singular thing in that entire story that prevents that younger son from reaching his furthest conclusion that the author here gives us in Ecclesiastes. Look at it with me in verse 18. Okay, here's the only way out. Okay, the only way to not go to these extremes the only way to not live in fearful, paranoid, illusion of control, the only way to not just give up and be apathetic uh, and just say, what's the point of all this? I'm just going to saturate my life with, with, with pleasure. I'm just going to be self-centered, do whatever I want to do. And when I die, I die. Okay, so the only way to navigate this is verse 18. Look at it with me. It is good that you should take hold of this 
And from that, withhold not your hand. Now, the this and that he just referenced is not what he's already said. It's what he's about to say. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. What is the only way to navigate the unpredictable and tragic nature of life? It is squarely with God in view. Uh, Another way of rephrasing uh, verse 18. uh, What was the only reason that younger son in the pen with the pigs dying of starvation could get up and run home to his father? What's the only way? Verse 18, to rephrase it, it is a radical, transformative infusion of grace. It's the only way. It's the only thing to deliver us from the illusion of control. It's the only thing to deliver us from the despair of just being as wicked as we could possibly be and being self-indulgent to the fullest degree. The only thing to navigate both of those extremes amidst the unpredictable, tragic nature of life is a transformative, powerful infusion of grace for us. See, that's what brings God squarely into view. It is in His divine mercy. It is the offering of His Son. It is the point when we finally look to God and say, God, I'm actually utterly out of control, but I will bow my knee to the one who is. And I will, because of the love you've approximated towards me in the person of Jesus, God, I will trust you. Amidst the pain, amidst the sorrow, amidst my own sin that I keep stumbling into, it says, God, I'll trust you. And I will lay down my hands and I will repent from the illusion of control that I've been living, actually believing that I'm God and that God isn't. It's in God's merciful shattering of our hearts where we reach the end of ourselves going, there's nothing I can do to put myself on the same level as an infinite, holy, and beautiful God. We need a desperate, powerful infusion of grace. Amen? But what about the other side? Oh, it's the only thing that prevents me from uh, not wholly giving myself to the desires and cravings of my flesh. What's the only thing that's going to prevent me being self-consumed, uh, making, making Jamie the center of the universe? It's a radical, transforming infusion of grace. It's the grace that lets me know true pleasure is found in intimacy with my Lord. It's the grace that says, you know, the greatest thing for the Christian is nothing that we taste now, and it's everything we taste in the world that is to come. It's the grace that finally lets me know there is no amount of pleasure that can fill the desperate void where we desire to know what meaning and purpose and love truly are. It's the grace that says, everything you've been trying to find in every place has left you wanting and will keep doing so unless Jesus Christ penetrates your heart. What's the only way to navigate the unpredictable, tragic nature of life? It is to, as the younger son did, run 
to the feet of the Father. And you know what's fascinating in that story in Luke 15? As that younger son crests the hill after being overly wicked, he doesn't find a static father standing there waiting to make sure he really makes it all the way in. The father ties up his clothes around his legs and sprints. And some of you here this morning may be wondering, well, okay, let's say I do want to drop my hands and repent to the Lord from believing that I'm God. And let's say some of us this morning say, look, I've been self-consumed and all of life is all about me and I'm tired of chasing pleasure. You may be wondering, what's God going to do in that moment? What's God's response going to be to your repentance? And I'll tell you, scripturally, it is going to be to sprint to you and redeem you and reconcile you and hold you close to him in an intimate embrace that you may up to this point have felt to be impossible. That's the God we serve. That's the God, no matter how much some of you may desire uh, not to exist, that's the God that is. That's the God that's alive. That's the God that's in control. And He, and only through Him, and the grace extended, and the relational reconciliation made possible through the person of Jesus Christ... That is the only possible way for us to navigate broken life that in many ways is ultimately out of our control. Now we could stop there, but I'm going to do one more thing. Uh, we made a point earlier, and it's just a practical preaching point um, from, from the, the rest of this passage. The rest of this passage is rich. I would exhort you towards it. Uh, I'll tell you, most of you are going to read the rest of it and go, I've got no idea what that means. And I'm going to tell you, welcome to the club. Uh, There are a lot of really good books on Ecclesiastes out there to help us navigate some of this cryptic language. Uh, But I'm going to center just for a moment and conclude our time back on that narrative of self-righteousness. I think that's a particularly uh, plaguing sin Uh, for us as Southerners. Uh, And I'm one of you. I'm an insider. Grew up in Auburn. Lived in the South most of my life. Um, Like going to church can kind of be a hobby for Southerners. And to be honest with you, it's a really weird hobby. It's like, (laughs) honestly, wake up earlier than most people do on Sunday. And for some of us, wear clothes no one else would ever wear on a Sunday. Sit in seats that aren't all that comfortable on a Sunday <laughs> and really be counting down the time till we go to lunch. Like, church is a weird hobby if that's all that it is. Uh, like, play golf. <laughs> we could do things that are more fun, except in the South, there's a semblance of presenting ourselves a certain way, isn't there? There's a self righteous narrative. 
that says, you know, we actually draw conclusions about people that uh, don't go to church on Sunday. And we draw conclusions about people that do. Surely the one group is better than the other. That's self-righteousness. It has a history of plaguing us as Southerners. And, and, and just a little bit further in this passage, I love that he does this. Uh, he highlights a particular sin and then he calls us out for being so offended for that sin. So if you just glance at it, I'll, I'll paraphrase just for time's sake. Uh, he says, I think in verse 21, he says, hey, as you're living, don't be consumed with what other people think about you. If you are, you're actually going to find out people don't like you. <laughs> and you're going to find out people say terrible things about you. And they think terrible things about you. And then the next verse he says, oh, hey, and by the way, once you find that out, don't be offended by it. Do you know why? You do the same thing. You do the same exact thing. That is self-righteousness. It is how utterly offended we are that someone could possibly do that to us, to me. While at the same time, I do the exact same thing to others. Now, you can substitute his example for anything. But let's just take his example. That's true for a lot of us here this morning. And just as a practical preaching point, your life is defined by what other people think about you. You are consumed with making sure everyone just likes you and thinks positively of you. As if somehow, if the popular opinion of you determines your standing with God... I used to be right there. Now, I'm so sinful. I've gone like all the other way. I'm like, this person doesn't like me. Don't care. Moving on. That's not really shepherding and compassionate. Uh, So I struggle on the other end now. Uh, I used to write. So I've been preaching for about 10 years. So I'm 35. Uh, I used to write sermons. This is a true story. Okay, it's like capital S stupid, but it's true. Uh, I used to write sermons a few years back. And you know what drove my content? I wanted to impress other pastors if they may hypothetically listen to my sermon one day. Right, so whatever popular pastor you could think of, I had that person in mind while I was preaching And that's pretty disgusting. You know who's at the center of worship in all of those sermons? Me. Do you know what drove that? Being so self-righteous and consumed, thinking that if I could get them to think great of me, somehow God would think great of me. God's approved me in the person of Christ Jesus. Doesn't always approve what I do, but he's approved me because I'm found to be in Christ. And I just want you to know, just from personal testimony, there is victory and freedom for you if you are controlled by the opinion of others. Uh, And if you are controlled by the opinion of others, they're not even the ones you're worshiping, it's yourself. Because you want to be thought great. I mean, we all do to some degree, but if that controls us, that's ultimately what we're worshiping. And if nothing else happens this morning, I'd love for you to walk away with two things. One, uh, 
Uh, if you have not tasted that radical, transforming infusion of grace that we referenced earlier, uh, that I have been asking the Holy Spirit that you would, and that your mind would be open, that your heart would be softened towards uh, repentance and faith in Christ. For some of you who know the Lord, it may simply be a repentance of coming back to intimacy. But secondly, it would be, uh, finally you may begin to taste the freedom that can come through the power of Christ from a life dominated by every opinion about you, save the one that counts the most. And I'll close with this. If you're in Christ, like here, so here's your number one opinion that matters. If you are in Christ this morning, here's what's biblically true. God loves you right now as much as he ever possibly can or will. He does not love some future version of yourself more. Let me say it again. If you're in Christ, he loves you right now as much as he possibly ever can or will. He does not love some future version of yourself more. To believe that he does love a future version of you more is to be tracking the line of being overly righteous and refusing grace. Now, 10 years from now, should I look more like Christ? Yes. Should my conduct be more pleasing to the Lord? Yes. Will any of that earn more of God's love? It will not. Because the Bible says he loves me with the same affection that he loves his son, Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Amen. The Lord has spoken. Let's pray. I was referencing the phone, not myself. God, I'm thankful this morning uh, that you have reminded us in your word of what's true about the broken reality of life and yet what's true about the only possible way to navigate it. And so as many of us could probably recount personal stories of life's unpredictable, tragic nature, would you in the power of your spirit prevent us from tracking the extreme lines that Solomon gives us and that you would posture us to live a life that is, that is categorized by the transforming power of the grace of Christ. For we confess this morning that is the only way to walk the road ahead. And it's in Christ's wonderful, matchless name I pray. Amen.